Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialist of America, a podcast aimed at offering a window into socialist analysis for those who are interested but may be intimidated or frustrated for one reason or another with engaging leftist politics. We are an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Our, mender, our members come from diverse backgrounds, but we all share a common goal, to build a different world, a better world. I'm Alfred Peeler. Hey, y'all, I'm CJ Bones. And today we'll take a critical look at the centerpiece of Andrew Yang's presidential campaign, a UBI proposal he calls the Freedom Dividend. Renegade Paradise is not particularly interested in offering a lot of Decision 2020 coverage, but from time to time, we'll address aspects of the race that can serve as foils for illustrating socialist positions and criticisms of the American political discourse in general. Today's episode is going to do just that. Thanks, Alfred. Um, so for those who don't know, UBI stands for Universal Basic Income, and that's the idea that everybody, or in, in given how things are, most likely every citizen would receive a, a cash benefit each month from the government. So that means no testing, no strings attached, nothing. UBI proposals have had a long history and are championed and criticized by folks all along of the political spectrum, including some surprising bedfellows. Uh, so a list of supporters would include Richard Nixon, Martin Luther King Jr., Milton Friedman, arch-racist Charles Murray, Peter Thiel... Elon Musk and even Hillary Clinton suggested that she thought about adding UBI to her platform in 2016. So we will include some links to stuff on the topic in the description so uh, y'all can get a little bit of background uh, where these ideas come from and how they compare to our analysis, particularly surrounding the Green New Deal today. Okay. So Andrew Yang is a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, and he has placed uh, such a proposal, a proposal at the center of his campaign. He argues that the automation of jobs, and he gives some pretty dire figures claiming one in three jobs will be lost in the next 12 years, demands a UBI to support those who are going to lose their jobs. He focuses on jobs in transportation, cargo, retail, food and bev, office administration, and factory work as being especially prone to automation. Supplying citizens with the UBI, according to Yang, will A, help our society weather this transition to automation, B, serve as a less patronizing option than having the state offer waivers for particular goods they decide are important, and C, 
owing to the lack of means testing, UBI will not come with the social stigma attached to quote-unquote entitlement programs. We're going to have a conversation about why we think Yang is wrong on a series of accounts. First, it completely misunderstands, or Yang completely misunderstands, from where the threat of automation arises. Spoiler alert, it's not anything inherent to technological innovation itself, it's capitalism. If you guys have been listening to our podcast thus far, you know that we were going to go there. You knew it was coming. Second, even if we ignore Yang's misguided analysis, his proposal won't solve the problem he sets out to solve. And third, Yang's proposal, in both its funding and in its disbursement, is unforgivably regressive. We'll end by discussing the Green New Deal for a little bit and why we see it as a, prefer a preferable tact forward. I'm Alfred Peeler. And I'm CJ Bones. This is Renegade Paradise. We'll be right back. Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialist of America. I'm Alfred Peeler. I'm CJ Bones. And we're looking critically today at Andrew Yang's UBI proposal, the Freedom Dividend. So let's begin with this coming threat of automation. We should note that despite Yang's certainty, this threat and definitely the figures he uses are highly controversial. But even if we accept his concerns, it is simply disingenuous to discuss automation as a threat endemic to technological advancement itself. As I said above, automation isn't the problem, capitalism is. And I'd like to also point out that it's called the freedom dividend, which, you know... <laughs> that should set off an alarm. Yeah, that should set off an alarm, you know, it's like, you know, freedom fries or, or, or whatever. It's like, yeah. what? Or Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Okay, so to illustrate this point, let's imagine a factory owner uh, or a factory is owned by capital shareholders and employs about 400 workers. And that new technologies will allow half of the labor to be automated. What can we expect to happen? Well, we can expect that half of the workers will get fired. The half that keep their jobs will find themselves in a much more precarious situation as there's a larger pool of unemployed labor competing for even fewer jobs. This increase to the unemployed buffer stock of labor can stagnate wages and render workers less likely to stand up for themselves, since they are more readily replaceable now. The impacts won't just stay within the factory, however, but can ripple out throughout the community. 200 lost jobs means 200 less workers spending money into the local economy, which can snowball when other businesses have to let workers go as their customer base decreases. If the factory plays a central economic role in the community, the ramifications of automation can be devastating, as we've seen in deindustrialized cities across the country. Finally, and most importantly, all of the benefits of automating, higher profit margins, gleaned from decreases in labor cost and increased productivity, accrue to the capital shareholders alone. And these folks mustn't, might not even live in the community that they just devastated. This is a complete shit show. Well said, Alfred. Um, so on the other hand, let's imagine that this same factory in the same community is owned by the workers themselves. Automating half the work away is not only no longer a threat, it's a desirable end in itself. 
when workers control the factory, productivity still increases through automation, as do the earnings, but nobody loses their job. In fact, everyone gets a decrease in work hours while retaining their current pay. The increase in earnings can even mean raises or bonuses for the factory workers if they so choose. Or they can be invested into community projects for the workers who want to see their neighborhoods improve since they live and work there. Far from the automation laying waste to entire communities, when the workers control the factory, the entire community reaps the benefits as economic activity and or community investments increasing. So these contrasting scenarios don't leave any room for debate, no matter what your overall opinion on socialism might be. Automation is only a crisis, it's only a problem because of capitalism. So let's take another short break before asking if Yang's UBI is up to the task that he sets it. I'm CJ Bones. And I'm Alfred Peeler. And this is Renegade Paradise. Welcome back to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialist of America. I'm Alfred Peeler. And I'm CJ Bones. Thanks for listening. Now, in the last section, we discussed how automation isn't the problem, capitalism is. But according to Yang, we need a UBI to deal with the current threat unless we're just straight up going to have a socialist revolution, which Charleston DSA is very much here for. I'm down with it. So let's turn to the specifics of Yang's plan. Yang wants to give every citizen 18 years and older $1,000 per month cash to spend as they please. Call them Yang bucks. There are some important caveats that we will get to in the next section, but for here, we just want to ask, will this actually stave off the crisis of automation as Yang understands it? It really doesn't seem like it. Yang loves to use truckers as his example, so let's follow his lead. These workers earn working-class incomes transporting cargo, but self-driving cars and other tech innovations can soon render these drivers an unnecessary expense for capital shareholders, so they'll be laid off because they don't control the spaces where they work. Yang describes the average trucker as mid-50s, high school educated, and not apt to succeed in retraining programs for STEM and computing fields. We haven't looked into these statistics, but we'll just take him at his words. Even even if those words are kind of shitty, it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely an assumption to think that just because you you know, drove a truck in your previous job doesn't mean you can't succeed in any other field, including STEM, but whatever. Right. We got a podcast to do, so let's keep going. Yeah, so Yang's point is that these truckers <laughs> will just be destitute without a UBI. The problem is, however, is that they will be destitute even with a UBI, or at least they'll be destitute with Yang bucks. So moving from $50,000 to $12,000 per year 
is definitely not a recipe for security. It's a recipe for penury. These truckers will have to get jobs to supplement their UBIs. And we should point out that Yang is aware of this and actually considers it a benefit of his plan, despite in other places describing his proposal as liberating workers to pursue their dreams, relocate, spend more time with their families, etc. In fact, we'll even pull the quote up a little bit later. This is actually a central problem with UBIs in general, not just Yang's. If you offer UBIs that genuinely free people from the need to work, then they'd have to be much, much larger than Yang bucks, and possibly, ultimately, unaffordable. Yang is real sly when he tries to walk this line about saving truckers without allowing fo folks to avoid work, and I haven't seen a journalist really push him too hard on this, even though Mehdi Hassan did a pretty good job, and we'll make sure to put a link to that interview below, because it's the best one I've seen so far. Yeah, we, we don't want to send everybody away without homework. That's just kind of what we do lately. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so given that these workers will definitely need to get new jobs um, if this UBI that Yang's been talking about gets, you know, enacted, where are they going to work? By Yang's own admission, there will be a limited variety of jobs that they would qualify for. And those same industries where those jobs are located are also automating. These laid off truckers won't be able to supplement their Yang bucks with work in retail, administration, food and bev, etc. because those industries will be automating as fast as possible. What will actually happen is that they'll be competing for unskilled work against workers who were laid off when these jobs were automated in the first place. So reducing the yearly earnings of those who lost jobs to a predatory capitalist automation to $12,000 a year will clearly have a huge negative impact on the economy. And the increased purchasing power the freedom dividend, the so-called freedom dividend, <laughs> affords those who didn't lose jobs will have little impact mitigating layoffs in sectors where automation is an option. Predatory capitalists will automate labor costs away no matter how much business they receive. That's just how this whole thing yeah. works. Expecting the extra $1,000 a month in the hands of those who aren't laid off to make up for the purchasing power loss from those who were seems dubious at best. Pretty soon, the combination of a growing population trying to survive on $1,000 a month, an ever-growing pool of unemployed and unskilled labor, and widespread decreases in purchasing power will stagnate wages wreak economic havoc on communities and further disempower the working class all while continuing to accrue the gains to capital. The freedom dividend will not combat automation if it's indeed a problem. Mm -hmm. It will not create new paying, new high paying jobs mm -hmm. and it will not provide financial solvency mm -hmm. because it's all tied to the same system. And that system is capitalism. So here's a quote from Andrew Yang's campaign page. This is great. This is so ridiculous. <laughs> he says, Yang Bucks would, quote, enable all Americans to pay their bills, educate themselves, start businesses, be more creative, stay healthy, relocate for work, spend time with their children, take care of loved ones, and have a real stake in the future. Uh, but as we've already pointed out, very clearly... It wouldn't. Like, how the fuck are you going to believe that? How are you going to, yeah. Like, have you, has this guy ever moved before? Yeah, or, or bought anything. Or, yeah. like, or lived. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in Charleston, it may ensure your landlord gets his. Maybe. 
But that's it. And Yang admits this when he assures conservative critics that his UBI proposal wouldn't free people from the need to work. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. And Mm -hmm. also, to that end, like, isn't wanting to free people from the drudgery of day-to-day struggling to survive just on its face a good thing? I I don't get it. Um, But anyway... Not to his heroes, apparently. Not to Milton Friedman. No, no. Charles Murray. Yeah. Um, So when we come back, we're going to look at Yang's proposal as an example of how UBIs can masquerade as working class politics while ultimately functioning in regressive fashion and damaging working class power even further. I'm CJ Bones. And I'm Alfred Peeler. And this is Renegade Paradise. I'm with from crossing pylons to dealing with pythons, clickbait. I don't fuck around with the mics on. You ain't lit unless you fight to keep the lights on. Uh, they really out here trying to kill hunger. If that's the case, they gon' paint me just like Killmonger. Uh, you gotta keep fighting while you're still younger. They try to box you in forever, that's a still slumber. Six feet under if you gotta really wonder. I refuse to be another motherfucking number. Welcome back to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Alfred Peeler. And I'm CJ Bones. In this section, we're going to move on to some of the specific regressive aspects of Yang's UBI proposal. The first important point about Yang bucks is that everyone can either opt in or out. If you opt in, you lose all rights to other entitlement programs except public health insurance. If you receive food stamps, temporary assistance for needy families, social security disability, etc., you do not get to collect a UBI on top of your current aid. You can either keep your current aid or opt for the UBI instead. That is literally a bait and switch. Yep. So this means that those who most need assistance um, benefit the least from his program. If you are struggling financially for any of the infinite array of reasons individuals and families struggle financially in this country and already depend on scraps from the state to keep your head above water, the Freedom Dividend has nothing to offer you, just it is nothing to offer those whose jobs Yang says will be lost to predatory capitalist automation. The elimination of the welfare state through the introduction of a UBI has long been a wet dream of neoliberal economists such as Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek for decades. Gross. And the consolidation of the welfare state is precisely how Yang proposes to pay for portions of his freedom dividend. But it gets worse. To pay for the rest of it, Yang proposes to budget Yang bucks via a value-added tax. We'll call it a VAT. A VAT is similar to a sales tax, except instead of just applying taxes to the ultimate user of the commodity, taxes are included at each step in the production process. What this means is some taxes are paid when raw materials are purchased, some again when retailers buy the manufactured product, and some when the consumer ultimately buys the product for use. For our purposes, the point is just this. Introducing VATs will increase the price of manufactured goods for consumers. And since a greater percentage of working people's and poor people's incomes are spent on commodities than those of wealthier earners, the increased prices will be more firmly felt by those who could most use the assistance. For those too reliant on government aid to opt in, they now see their money afford them less than it previously did. So even if you can't get the Yang Bucks, you still have to pay the VAT that's funding the Yang Bucks. For those whose jobs were automated and rely on Yang Bucks, that $1,000 a month is worth less than it would be because of Yang's method of financing his UBI proposal to begin with. In both its implementation, as well as in its budgeting, 
The Freedom Dividend is a regressive affront to the welfare state and working class power. The authors of neoliberalism would applaud. Wow. Um, So we got one more quote from Yang's page real quick. Quote, a universal basic income at this level would permanently grow, permanently? Permanently grow the economy by 12.56 to 13.10%, or about 2.5 trillion by 2025. And it would increase the labor force by 4.5 to 4.7 million people. Putting money into people's hands and keeping it there would be a perpetual boost and support to job growth and the economy, unquote. So, I'm no expert, but this is very hard to believe. Very hard to believe. These are Chinese economic miracle type numbers, and I doubt very much Yang could defend these claims if these numbers reference GDP. So, to recap, the so-called freedom dividend doesn't put money in the hands of those already dependent on government aid unless they give up that same aid. It doesn't put money in the hands of those whose jobs are automated away since they'd suffer a net loss in income. And the increased purchasing power of those who haven't lost their jobs yet will in no way make up for the decrease in purchasing power of those who lost their jobs to automation. Remember, we're talking 33% of all jobs gone by 2030 on Yang's own estimates on his own website. So let's hope he's wrong while we organize for true solutions. Solutions we'll discuss in the next and final section. I'm CJ Bones. And I'm Alfred Peeler. And this is Renegade Paradise. Welcome back to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialist of America. I'm Alfred Peeler. And I'm CJ Bones. We want to end today's episode by briefly contrasting the Freedom Dividend to the Green New Deal and asking which, pro- which program really amounts to working class empowerment. Now, as we've discussed, the UBI proposal does nothing to assuage the threat of predatory capitalist automation, if it indeed exists but it replaces living salaries with government scraps that aren't even available to the most needy. In addition, Yang bucks are funded by a regressive value-added tax and set us on the path to scraping away the already struggling welfare state. The Green New Deal, on the other hand, is what we in DSA call a non-reformist reform. That is, a reform to the still capitalist economy that nonetheless moves a significant amount of political and economic power to working class and marginalized communities that may provide support for further revolutionary activity. How does it do this? So far, all we have is the 14-page resolution authored by AOC and Senator Markey, but it's enough to begin a discussion while we wait for the bill which is being written as we speak. So first and foremost, the Green New Deal aims to situate our energy consumption within the parameters laid out by these last two IPCC reports in the hopes of limiting global average temperature increases to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels and avoid the devastating effects failing to do so would entail. Yang bucks don't mean shit if the world is dying. The Green New Deal aims to do this while massively overhauling our neoliberal economy with social democratic reforms such as the following. Medicare for all, housing for all, food security for all, 
and a federal job guarantee. These measures decommodify the health insurance industry, ensure everyone has shelter and sustenance, and a job. This eliminates an unemployed buffer stock of labor that predatory capitalists can exploit to drive down wages and pit workers against one another. And it eliminates the threat of starvation, homelessness, and sickness that comes with being fired from the job if you challenge the boss. The Green New Deal gives us a way to push back against neoliberalism and the threat of, autom- and the threat of automation, if there be one, by empowering working people, especially the most marginalized among us. The freedom dividend is just a trick that lets capitalism off the hook for creating the problem, disempowers working people, attacks the last bastions of the welfare state, all while using decidedly regressive means to not even solve the problem it claims it was designed to solve. Oh, man. I, I kind of want to put Yang Bucks don't mean shit if the world is dying on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's talk about Yang's universal basic income proposal on a local level for a moment. So we've been kind of talking a little bit more high level, like how it will affect folks all across the country. Um, so we're going to try to break it down a little bit because we always try to keep a local spin on some of these issues here on Renegade Paradise because uh, that's what's important. We um, So... Let's just dive right in. So there's going to be quite a few sectors of uh, of uh, economic activity here in Charleston um, that may be affected and definitely have led to uh, Charleston's economic uh, ascendance over the past several years. Um, one of those things is a vibrant food culture inspired in part by a mixture of generations of Gullah Geechee, French Huguenot, and West African traditions that placed us as a unique uh culinary center. As such, the food and beverage industry has a strong presence here. Um, our location on one of the deepest harbors on the East Coast has led to a strong shipping industry. Um, the Boeing plant in North Charleston is the single single largest private employer in the metro area with approximately 7,000 employees. Uh, MUSC, that is the Medical University of South Carolina, is a large educational medical center that treats patients from all over the country. MUSC is responsible for approximately 12% of the Charleston area economy, according to the Charleston Regional Business Turtle. So, that means this area is directly in the crosshairs of the inevitable automation process. Capitalism is all about generating as much profit for shareholders as possible, and one of the most common ways to do that is by whittling down labor costs as much as they can. So earlier, we talked about uh, jobs in transportation, cargo, retail, food and beverage, office administration, and factory work that is a, that are especially prone to being automated. This means that modern cargo ships moving in and out of the harbor uh, have had their workforces reduced by sophisticated navigation and logistics software. Workers involved in international shipping may be threatened by increasingly advanced robotics. Mechanics and technicians may become obsolete as Boeing turns to high-tech solutions to lower labor costs, as we said earlier. Numerous and skilled food and beverage employees may be jobless in the near future, which will affect other industries throughout the supply chain. Everything from trucking to farming could be impacted as restaurants move towards technical solutions to solve the problem. When taking all these issues into account... Yang's universal basic income proposal is an inadequate solution at best and a poison pill at worst. Newly unemployed workers under Yang's plan will receive mediocre monthly stipends that will not even cover the average monthly rent here in Charleston. 
uh, which currently stands at $1,323 a month, according to rentcafe.com. Yeah. Uh, folks who were already dependent on housing subsidies would have it even worse. Um, as we mentioned earlier, they would not be eligible for Yang Bucks, not to mention folks that have uh, that receive disability payments, child care vouchers, food stamps, etc. Yeah, I mean, this made me think about child care vouchers. So my child is in um, summer camp right now and will be in full-time school when the school year starts. And if we were receiving uh, ABC food vouchers and we opted into the UBI program instead, we wouldn't get those vouchers anymore. We would get the $1,000, but we would literally have to take that entire $1,000 and spend it right back on the child care. So yeah. it would pretty much only cover the child care voucher. So yeah. we're not we're not getting a boost to our um, disposable income or anything like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, it's that same basic, uh, that same bait and switch tactic we were talking about earlier. Um, so um, what will actually happen if Yang's UBI proposal uh, is, you know, becomes a reality, uh, what will actually happen is it will flood the job market here in Charleston with people of varying skill levels that suddenly find themselves scrambling to make up the difference between their paltry $12,000 a year income and the actual cost of living in this area, which, as we've talked about, uh, based on rent and, you know, many other uh, issues, is a lot higher than the national average. 12000 will not cut it. No. <laughs> Workers who are still fortunate enough to find themselves employed post-UBI, which... Uh, will, as we've discussed earlier, be clinging to their jobs for dear life until they are inevitably replaced as well. Yeah, as an example of the damage that Yang's UBI proposal and UBI in general could do to the region, one of the factors of living in this area, especially if you live in a flood zone, is high flood insurance. And just imagine the devastation that would occur after the next major hurricane, which is coming, if jobs here in Charleston are automated out of existence and Charleston residents suddenly found themselves flooded out of their homes with no hope of rebuilding due to lapsed flood insurance. Quite a bit of this city is within flood zones. Yeah, quite a bit of it is underwater, like literally. <laughs> so this would create the perfect solution for parasitic predatory capitalists who would suddenly be able to buy a lot of properties for very cheap, bulldoze them over and build more expensive luxury condos on, or hotels. The working class of Charleston would be rendered helpless as predatory capitalists would swarm the city, picking it clean to the bones. We've seen this already in many neighborhoods in downtown Charleston and in Mount Pleasant. Imagine the scale expanded dramatically throughout the entire metro area. We are already facing a mass economic exodus of the working class residents, coupled by some of the fastest gentrification rates in the country. And Yang's UBI proposal would kick this problem into hyperspace. Man, if I had a dime for every time I heard some somebody complain about how hard it is to find a, you know, a, a solid bartender. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now let's begin to, let's begin to contrast this with the Green New Deal, which um, takes a far more in-depth look at the structural inequalities and systems of exploitation plaguing American society and addressing them using a, a wide variety of strategies. We've included several in this, in this segment taken directly from the text of the bill just because there's so much noise out there about what is in the resolution. And apparently there's not a lot of will to actually read this, even though it's just 14 pages. It's kind of a breeze. <laughs> um, and I mean, th th there, are, there are some really exciting ideas um, 
and in, in order to drive, it's not as hard as it seems yeah <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of legalese like uh law pages are really like half pages because they're all indented weirdly and all this stuff yeah. but anyway um w- because there's so much noise out there we thought we would just list um a good bit of the sort of like main components of the green new deal resolution so we're just going to list them off so first Building resilience against climate change-related disasters, which disproportionately hurts the working class, marginalized communities, uh, the working class and marginalized communities, and is also disproportionately caused by the predatory capitalist class. Two, repairing and upgrading the infrastructure in the United States. Three, eliminating pollution and greenhouse gas emissions as much as technologically feasible. Four, reducing the risk posed by climate impacts, which, as stated earlier, is caused by the largest, most powerful corporations and disproportionately affects working class and marginalized communities. Five, ensuring that any infrastructure bill considered by Congress addresses climate change. Six, meeting 100% of the power demand in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero emission energy sources. Seven, dramatically expanding and upgrading renewable power sources. Eight, Building or upgrading to energy-efficient, distributed, and smart power grids and ensuring affordable access to electricity. I hope that this all sounds like pretty normal, run-of-the-mill things that we would want in our society so far. But anyway, we'll keep, I think so. we'll keep going. 10. Spurring massive growth in clean manufacturing in the United States and removing pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from manufacturing and industry as much as is te- technologically feasible including by expanding renewable energy manufacturing and investing in existing manufacturing and industry. 11. Working collaboratively with the farming and agricultural and transportation sectors to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible. 12. Mitigating and managing the long-term adverse health, economic, and other effects of pollution and climate change, including by providing funding for community-defined projects and strategy. That's a big one for us because that language sort of Hints that this would be non-governmental, sort of directly democratic, like local organizations that can maybe form plans and receive public funds to combat climate change through their own planning. That'll have to get worked out in its specifics, but that language is pretty exciting. Yeah, pull pull the leadership from the folks that are on the ground that are actively, you know, experiencing uh, these problems and and asking them to provide their expertise and to crafting solutions. I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, 13, removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and reducing pollution by restoring natural ecosystems through proven low-tech solutions that increase soil carbon storage, such as land preservation and afforestation. I'm going to I'm gonna let you go on from here for a little bit. All right. Yeah, there's there's a few more. So uh, sit back and, and relax. Um, uh, all great things, I think. Uh Item 14, restoring and protecting threatened, endangered, and fragile uh, ecosystems through locally appropriate and science-based projects that enhance biodiversity and support climate resiliency. Just a quick fact, uh, the southeastern coast is home to the single largest salt marsh habitat in the country. So this this is not only important to... um, our cultural heritage in this in 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 the in this area, but also critical to the environment because of its natural barrier uh, or its natural ability to absorb floodwaters, um, and also you know the highly 
you know, the, all the nutrients from the pluff mud that, you know, sustained that, that um, web of life basically here in the mm-hmm. area. It's all part of the same, you know, the same web, the circle of life as it were. <laughs> um, number 15, cleaning up and uh, cleaning up existing hazardous waste and abandoned sites, ensuring economic development and sustainability on those sites. Typically, the cities, neighborhoods, and groups that are most affected by these types of dangers are the ones least able to fight back against them, uh, typically due to environmental racism, which is a topic that we will come back to in a later episode. Uh, Lack of financial resources, lack of media coverage, and lack of legal representation. And as you can imagine, this is all tied together. Um, Item 16, providing resources, training, and high-quality education, including higher education, to all people of the United States with a focus on frontline and vulnerable communities. Item 17, directing investments to spur economic development, deepen and diversify uh, industry and business in local and regional economies, and build wealth and economy ownership. I'm sorry, uh, and build wealth and community ownership while prioritizing high quality job creation and economic, social, and environmental benefits in frontline and vulnerable communities and industrialized communities that may otherwise struggle with the transition away from greenhouse gas uh, intensive industries. Uh, That last one was a little wordy, but uh, bear with me. We are almost done. Uh, Item 18, ensuring the use of democratic and participatory processes that are inclusive of and led by frontline and vulnerable communities and workers to plant implement and administer the Green New Deal mobilization at the local level. So, Alfred, this kind of ties back into what you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here in the in the low country, I think it's very important to remember and, and understand how, you know, gentrification works, how, um, you know, the burden of dealing with ecological disasters typically falls and it typically falls along uh, lines of race and of class and and of wealth. Um, So this sort of language is extremely inclusive and, and, you know, we here at Charleston DSA are all for it. Um, Number 19, ensuring that the green new deal mobilization creates high quality union jobs that pay prevailing wages, hire local workers, offer training and advancement opportunities, and guarantee wage and benefit parity for workers affected by the transition. 20. Guaranteeing a job with a family-sustaining wage, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations, and retirement security to all people of the United States. 21. Strengthening and protecting the right of all workers to organize, unionize, and collectively bargain free of coercion intimidation and harassment. So I'm loving this because this is how we take back the workplaces that we built and that we run. Um, Number 22, strengthening and enforcing labor, workplace health and safety, anti-discrimination and wage and hour standards across all employers, industries and sectors. So this one I think is super exciting because um, wage theft is a huge problem here in Charleston, especially, um, you know, in the food and beverage industry, yeah, massive food and beverage industry. And, and Been I, th- there. yeah, yeah. And I think we are going to hopefully cover that in, um, in another episode. Uh, you know, that's the thing when we put these things together, there's just so much to, uh, dive into that. I'm, I'm surprised that by the end of the podcast, these episodes aren't like three or four hours long each. So we, we really have to do a lot of editing and a lot of chopping to get them down into uh, 
uh, decent amounts of time. And, and just real quick, any Charleston food and bed workers who are listening to this, feel free to get in touch with us if you are interested in unionizing because... We are here for it. We are here to help. And we it. want to help. So um, as, as we mentioned earlier, we're going to put our contact information in the description um, for this episode. Um, or if you got a pen and paper, just write it down. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we can be reached at uh, info at charlestondsa.org. Um, number 23, enacting and enforcing trade rules, procurement standards, and border adjustments with strong labor and environmental protections to stop the transfer of jobs and pollution overseas and to grow domestic manufacturing in the United States. I think, I think, I don't remember, this may be wrong, don't quote me on it, but I think too, like in the part of the resolution where she's this addressing this. This is public this, record now. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that she, um, or uh, AOC and Senator Markey, I don't want to leave him out, I think that they tried to make clear that they wanted it when the trade when trade deals are being put together it's not just political leaders and capital shareholders and like finance experts sitting at a table but at that table are included environmentalists are working people are labor leaders and so on that are yeah. actually helping to draft the the trade deals yeah yeah i i appreciate you uh alfred kind of you know giving more context to that because when somebody says procurement standards, my eyes kind of glaze over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's hope I'm not wrong about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, we're just reading out the, you know, the general purpose statement and, and uh, you know, are going to keep an eye on this as more developments happen. Mm-hmm. Um Item 24, ensuring that uh, public lands, waters, and oceans are protected and that eminent domain is not abused. So if you want to protect your beaches, South Carolina, this may be something to pay attention to. Um, Number 25, obtaining the free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous peoples for all decisions that affect indigenous peoples and their traditional territories. Uh, honoring all treaties and agreements with indigenous peoples and protecting and enforcing the sovereignty and land rights of indigenous peoples. Item 26, ensuring a commercial environment where every business person is free from unfair competition and domination by domestic or international monopolies. Uh, item 27, the final ad- uh, the final item, so thanks for sticking around and, and listening to this with us, y'all. Um, Providing the, all people of the United States with high-quality health care, affordable, safe, and adequate housing, economic security, and clean water, clean air, healthy and affordable food, and access to nature. In Charleston, where it's already impossible to live and food deserts are rampant, this is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to sum up, the Green New Deal in our opinion, really attempts to tackle the roots of the many challenges facing the working class today. And those roots originate in predatory capitalist exploitation on multiple fronts. And on the other hand, Yang's universal basic income proposal will dramatically ramp up these challenges to the working class by undercutting job stability, ripping apart the social safety net, failing to address climate change, and putting even more control of the economy into the hands of predatory capitalists. We can do better. We must not settle for the scraps of the ultra-rich or the power brokers in D.C. The Green New Deal is by no means the be-all and end-all of the Democratic Socialists of America. And it's definitely not the only strategy that we here at Charleston DSA 
are interested in. And, and it also just, it shouldn't be considered like a final strategy in combating capitalism itself. And then like the Green New Deal is so much better, just like obviously superior to Yang's freedom dividend, but it does have its problems. You know, it, it doesn't tackle um, the fact that so much uh, greenhouse gases are released by the American war machine. Right. It doesn't tackle concerns over if we're going to be greening our energy grids with um, batteries where the cobalt was mined by children in Congo right. and things like that. So, like, it, it needs to be expanded. So, we want to be clear, we're not saying that this is, we get the Green New Deal and then it's socialism. Like, that's, <laughs> that's not what's going on here. Yay, Just, congratulations. Yeah. Socialism. Good job, everybody. But compared, like, the amount of power this moves into the hands of working class people, marginal uh, marginalized people compared to $1,000 a month, and that's it. It's There's no comparison, really. Right. And, and thank you for, uh, thank you for putting that into context, Alfred. Um, cause, uh, he, he, uh, Charleston DSA, I think we are always trying to move forward and, um, trying to win victories where we can, um, but also keeping, uh, our eyes on the prize, which is, as we mentioned in, at the beginning of each episode, a different world and a better world. And that world is world free from capitalism. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up the episode, um, we think that this Green New Deal is the first in a series of steps that we will need to take as the working class in reclaiming our power. Um, so that's it for today. Um, thank you all for listening. I'm CJ Bones. I'm Alfred Peeler. And y'all be good. Exploitation, no sooner take